Foreign Relations uh, Committee will come to order, and I want to welcome uh, our witness. Uh, I understand there may be circumstances where you may need to depart, and uh, please, we're just glad you're here, and if you need to leave in two minutes, leave. I understand uh, there may be something occurring that would cause that to, to okay, please, so just whatever makes you comfortable. Um, glad to be here uh, with our outstanding ranking member uh, who uh, I've enjoyed working with so much. Um, and I'm glad we're having this hearing today on something that's uh, so important to people around the world. Um, I don't normally read opening statements. I think I may do it. Uh, we've been sort of focused on another issue for a while. But uh, I think uh, people know that since 1954, U.S. international food aid programs have helped feed over 3 billion people and promote food security in over 150 countries. Mo most U.S. food aid is provided through Food for Peace, which is currently funded on average at $1.6 billion annually. Over the past five years, U.S. food aid has helped 56 million people on average per year. Today's hearing will provide the committee with an update on the current operations of the program, including the challenges it faces while responding to increasingly dangerous emergencies. This increasingly challenging global environment has illustrated to Congress the need for greater flexibility in how Food for Peace operates. The law requires that 100% of the food aid be delivered, aid to be delivered, be U.S. purchased commodities, and 50% of that to be shipped on U.S. flagged vessels. While recent reforms in the Farm Bill provide some administrative funds to be used for such things as local, locally and regionally purchased food aid and, or food vouchers, this limited flexibility must be executed in tandem with U.S. purchased commodities. The cargo and commodity preferences create inefficiencies that undermine our ability to get maximum impact in addressing poverty and suffering from our U.S. food aid dollars. In some cases where U.S. national security interests are at stake, like in Syria and other regions in conflict, U.S. food aid plays an important role in U.S. policy and engagement. These interventions would not be possible if we relied on U.S. purchased commodities. Increasing Increasing flexibility in the Food for Peace program would provide up to $440 million in savings, allowing the U.S. to reach as many as 12 million more starving people, up to two and a half months faster in some cases. Again, I just, I think this just jumps out at us that the self-imposed limitations, uh, I'm tired, I haven't had a lot of sleep, I just say the special interest, the special interest um, that capture this program cause people around the world to starve. While the impact of reforming U.S. food aid overseas is profound, the domestic implications are minor as food aid only con contributes 1.41% to net farm income and 0.86% to agricultural exports. I've joined forces with my friend and colleague, Senator Coons, by authorizing with him the Food for Peace Reform Act. We're seeking to increase the flexibility of our food aid programs and are looking to our witnesses today to illustrate why reform to the program matters. For many around the globe, we are not yet reaching, but it could. It is a matter of life and death. And again, we thank you for being here. I look forward to turning to Senator 
Senator Cardin and maybe Senator Coons has been such a champion, but uh, I hope out of this hearing something is going to occur where we will do the things necessary to make sure that our U.S. dollars help those people that today as we sit here in this comfort uh, are starving because of special interest here in our own nation. Uh, with that, uh, Senator Corker. Well, Senator Corker, first of all, thank you for uh, convening this hearing. Uh, yesterday, uh, this committee dealt with a very visible issue of national security, and that is preventing Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state. Today, we're dealing with another issue of national security, but it isn't quite as visible as a nuclear possibility of a nuclear Iran. I think we all understand that extremists get their strength from people who are desperate and have little hope. And when you're hungry, you're desperate. So this is an issue, as I see it, of national security. It also, of course, is an issue of what this country stands for, the values of America, what this country has been a leader worldwide in promoting uh, the right values. So uh, I welcome this hearing, and I thank Senator Corker, I thank Senator Coons for their leadership in bringing forward reform of our, uh, our American food aid and the Food for Peace program so that we can do more with the resources we have. Uh, Senator Corker pointed out the incredible record that this country has had since 1954, three billion people have been benefited by the U.S. programs, 150 countries. That's an incredible record. But let me give you one that we are not proud about. Since 2009, uh, the uh, Food for Peace program has lost about 37 percent of, uh, of its funding. Uh, that, in spite of the fact that the international needs have grown. 805 million people are estimated to be chronically hungry. 51.2 million people have been displaced by conflict. So the needs today are greater and the resources are less. The U.S. has provided international leadership. I've had an opportunity, Mr. Chairman, uh, because I represent the Senate at the United Nations, along with Senator Johnson, to be up at the United Nations and talk about the Millennium Development Goals and how much we've been successful internationally. This is an international effort to get people out of, of poverty and hunger. Those goals are working. They were very defined, but U.S. leadership is critically important to make it work. So we have to do a better job on our food for peace. And the legislation the two of you have brought forward says let's use our money more efficiently. And it's been estimated that we could serve as many as 8 to 10, 12 million more people with the same amount of resources if we reform the system. 8 to 12 million. I know numbers, you don't see numbers. We could have all those people here today. I think it would be a very visible reminder that we have to do a better job, and it really could have a major impact on our, on our goals and on our national security. I, I do want to give a word of, of caution. Uh, there are serious issues that have to be resolved if we're going to be able to move this legislation forward. We have concerns in the maritime industry. We have concerns with U.S. agriculture. We have concerns by the partnerships with our NGOs dealing with lockbox and monetization and other issues. We need to be able, these are legitimate concerns, and we're going to be, have to work through that. But Mr. Chairman, 
if we can work through the nuclear review agreement, this should be a piece of cake. We should get this done a lot easier. So I look forward to our witnesses. And with, if I would ask unanimous consent that I could put statements in the record from the Catholic Relief Services, which is located, headquartered in Baltimore, Maryland, U.S. Maritime Industries, and the Bread for the World. Yeah, without objection, and uh, I'm glad that uh, uh, these entities that have so much to do with this program will have, have a chance. I know we tried to accommodate additional witnesses, but uh, anyway, I'm glad you made that statement. And I wonder if Senator Coons wants to make an opening comment. Thank you, Chairman Corker, and I'll be brief. Um, I just want to thank uh, Senator Cardin, uh, and Ranking Member Cardin, and you, Chairman Corker, uh, for continuing to bring forward a spirit of bipartisanship and a focus on important and difficult issues. Um, out of yesterday's uh, markup, I continue to be optimistic. We can tackle all sorts of big challenges. Uh, food aid reform is uh, one that's eluded uh, any significant progress for a long time. And as you've both cited, uh, it's made enormous impacts around the world. It has fed billions of people uh, over decades. Um, but the twin challenges we face are how to make this program more efficient so that it reaches more people, so that it does the best we can with taxpayer dollars, yet how do we sustain food aid so that we don't, by making changes that pursue efficiency, suddenly wake up and realize we've lost half or two-thirds of the funding and in reaching to feed 8 to 12 million more end up ultimately feeding fewer. That is the political Rubik's Cube uh, that we need to work together to solve. There is no doubt, there have been studies from GAO to George Mason to nonprofit groups, there is no doubt the current system is inefficient and it wastes a significant amount, both of commodity uh, and uh, costs. But the core question is, can we make it both more efficient and more sustainable? And I really look forward to working with both of you to achieve that goal. Thank you for this hearing today. Thank you, and I think uh, people should know for the record uh, one of the reasons that we're having this hearing today is a commitment that was made to Senator Kroon as we closed out last year that, uh, that we would deal with this issue. So I thank him for his leadership. Our, our first witness is uh, Director Dina Esposito, as long as she's here, uh, from the USAID Office uh, food for Food for Peace. Director Esposito uh, manages the Food for Peace program, which responds to acute food insecurity by providing in-kind food aid locally and regionally procured food aid, food vouchers, and cash transfers to millions of people affected by, the, by conflict and natural disasters annually. In addition, it also supports interventions in critical areas such as nutrition, health, agriculture, and, agriculture, and livelihoods to address the underlying causes of poverty and hunger among the poorest of the poor with development food aid. Thank you for being here and sharing your thoughts. Uh, please take however long you wish to share those thoughts and we'll have questions. Thank you very much. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for inviting me today to testify on the administration's efforts to modernize and improve U.S. food aid programs. We appreciate the opportunity to share how USAID's Office of Food for Peace is working to make our food assistance programs more efficient and effective in a changing world. We likewise recognize and appreciate your bipartisan interest in modernizing food assistance as expressed in your recently introduced Food for Peace Reform Act. I first started in humanitarian aid work back in the early 90s, and at that time I had the opportunity to visit with refugees and displaced persons in many hot spots around the world. Today, as the Food for Peace director, I am still visiting trouble spots. And while the circumstances are equally tragic and our commitment just as constant, I am struck by just how different our response options now are. Expanding markets, new technologies, and other innovations make the world a different place. 
but these new opportunities are accompanied by new challenges. Today, more people are affected by conflict and natural disasters than any time since World War II, and the cost of traditional food aid is rising, making it increasingly difficult to meet even minimum levels of global need. Given these factors and an overall constrained budget environment, further reforming U.S. food aid programs to advance our humanitarian, economic, and national security interests makes sense. Our reform pro proposals build on a clear evidence base of the last five years, as well as bipartisan efforts dating from President Bush's initial calls for reform after the food price crisis of in 2008. Those calls laid the groundwork for Food for Peace's emergency food security program. This initiative, established in 2010 through the International Disaster Assistance Account, supports local and regional procurement and targeted cash and voucher-based food assistance. Our data confirms the analysis undertaken by the Government Accountability Office that food purchased locally and regionally is more cost efficient. For Africa, it is on average 34% more efficient than shipping food aid from the United States. Response time is also faster. U.S. in-kind food commodities can take four to six months to reach beneficiaries, while food purchased closer to those in need can cut that time in half. I want to provide two real-world examples of how flexibility in our food assistance programs is making a difference. More than 10 million Syrians are displaced today, and 4 million are refugees in neighboring countries, including Lebanon and Jordan. Most do not live in camps. They live in the towns and cities of these middle-income countries where commerce is active and grocery stores accessible. To address this vast and complex crisis, donors led by the United States are supporting a food assistance debit card so refugees can buy food in local markets. The debit card not only provides greater choice and dignity to those war victims, but as importantly, eases the pressure on host communities by supporting local merchants and adding jobs through expanded businesses. Meeting life-saving needs in this way contributes to the stability of U.S. allies in this troubled region. After a natural disaster, responding rapidly can mean the difference between life and death. Following Hurricane Haiyan in the Philippines, we responded with the purchase of local food stocks that reached storm victims within days of the event. Six weeks later, U.S. food commodities prepositioned in the region arrived, followed by more food from the United States. Growing our ability to always respond with the right tool at the right time led to the administration's fiscal year 2014 food aid reform proposal. While the proposed reforms were not adopted, the 2014 Farm Bill did give Food for Peace 7% increased flexibility. This reform alone helped us to reach some 600,000 additional beneficiaries last year. But we could do so much more. Food for Peace regularly finds opportunities to improve efficiencies. Just recently, we saved $4 million in the Democratic Republic of Congo by buying food locally as part of our relief response. With greater flexibility, we would have purchased even more locally, generating an additional $12 million in savings. Missed opportunities like these are why the President's fiscal year 16 budget once again includes a request for food aid, for reform of food aid programs. I must emphasize that reform does not equal no U.S. in-kind food. Last year, for example, the U.S. provided 120,000 tons of U.S. food to South Sudan when conflict cut off millions and markets were not functioning. 
pulling that country back from the brink of famine. This was the right tool at the right time, which is what food aid reform is all about. I would be remiss if I did not close by saying that we at the USAID Office of Food for Peace are proud to be managing the resources so generously provided by the American people to alleviate hunger and suffering overseas. I also want to recognize our many stakeholders who make this work possible and honor those who risk their lives to deliver assistance to hungry people around the world. Thank you again for your continued commitment to ending global, global hunger. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, and thank you very much for what you and your staff do on behalf of our country. It's uh, deeply appreciated. Just to begin, uh, what would be the implications for U.S. national security if, if you did not have the flexibility that you now have in Syria and in the region in delivering aid, and you had to rely solely on U.S. commodities? Senator Corker, the Syria example is a great one. I tried to describe in my testimony just how important it is to assuring that uh, we are helping our allies address the tensions that can arrive when so many people uh, arrive in the country, stressing water services, social services. We have a very politically unstable situation, obviously, and by providing this kind of assistance, we can help mitigate uh, in, uh, additional further uh, insecurity. Um, in Lebanon, for example, one in four persons is now a refugee. To put that in perspective, proportionally, that's like 80 million people coming to the United States in a, just a few years' time with little or no resources. So you can imagine the kind of tremendous stress that puts our allies under. So this is part of our, our toolkit, part of our effort to uh, mitigate uh, instability within, these, within the region. So critics of us uh, not purchasing food uh, created in the U.S. say that uh, it increases the, challenge, the uh, chance of using unsafe food. Uh, in the places where we've been able to use local and regional food, has this been a problem? Senator Corker, I just want to underscore how seriously we take this issue. Whether we're using in-kind United States food or locally procured food, Food safety, food safety standards are rigorously followed. Uh, food safety standards of recipient countries must be met. Requiring, we require testing for human pathogens and toxins. During the last four years, there have been no reports of unsafe food with, re with regard to our local or regional procurement. We are, though, remaining vigilant. We have expanded, we are expanding our commodity management training for all of our partners. And we have re reissued our commodity management guide, which is relevant whether we're, we're using in-kind food or locally and regionally procured food. So if I hear you correctly, uh, that allegation is a hoax. <laughs> okay. We have no, no uh, reports of unsafe food. Okay. Critics of reform also claim that cash-based programs transfer cash from the U.S. to corrupt governments, but we know that the aid is being provided directly to beneficiaries, so could you discuss this issue for us? Thank you, Senator. Um, the the in-kind food program, the voucher program, these programs are implemented and by the same trusted partners who've been implementing in-kind food aid for the last 60 years. They, uh, you're right, the government, we do not give any of our Title II food assistance to governments. Um, our partners assess need independently. 
They target based on that need. They register people to be sure we can monitor who's getting the aid. Um, we, are in, we are relying on established financial institutions, including banks, to help with our transfers. Yeah. Uh, and we um, have a series of new technologies that allow us to assure that the resources are going to the people who need it most. So for example, the debit card program in Jordan and Turkey, we're able to track every item purchased in the grocery store because it's scanned with a barcode just like here. And we don't pay the vendors until we're sure that the, the funds were used properly. So there are a lot of new, new ways, new tools that we have available to us to mitigate the risk of uh, unintended use for these resources. So generally speaking, uh, that criticism is a hoax. <laughs> we do, whether in kind or, or locally, regionally procured, we do all we can to assure that there are no unintended uses of I'm our resources. I'm sure there are examples, minor examples, but generally speaking, That's uh, correct, that sir. is not the case. So we are the only major developed country in the world that still provides the bulk of our food aid through domestic commodities. Yes, Senator. I think it kind of <laughs> speaks for itself. <laughs> And I just uh, would like to know, does this make it more difficult for us to coordinate with other, other multilateral agencies and, and other donors in really hard-hit areas like Haiti, for example, um, in, in dealing with making sure that people have uh, food when they need it? Senator, the, uh, the coordination really varies from country to country, and it depends on the context. So in some circumstances, there's certainly room for different approaches depending on the nature of the problem. Yeah. Uh, I think the real challenge comes for our partners when other donors are requiring or asking for one modality and we are in turn asking for a different modality. So trying to, uh, it, it, running dual types of platforms can be extremely complex for, for our partners. Uh, so that's, but it's very, very context specific. So uh, we, so the other developed countries that, uh, mm -hmm. like us, care deeply about making sure that people have food, um, they have more flexibilities. We're sort of locked in to. Um, That's great. And, uh, and they will press those partners to yeah. do the work in the most efficient way possible. So as the uh, perceived most innovative free nation in the world, um, we're really behind the rest of the world when it comes to feeding the poor. Is that correct? Senator, we are a global leader in food assistance, for, uh, and we do, uh, we're very proud of that leadership role. But we think that we could be more effective if, if we had additional flexibility. Listen, thank you for being here, and um, I look forward to the questions from our distinguished ranking member. Well, first of all, I join the chairman in thanking you for your incredible service to this country and to our global goals. It's a, it's a challenge because the world is never staying still and the challenges in the countries you're working in become very difficult at time and you're still able to move forward. So we thank you very much for that. Uh, according to the Department of Defense, without the base of food aid cargoes to help sustain commercial U.S. flag fleets, we may not be able to sustain the national defense sea lift capabilities of our military needs without a significant additional federal expenditures. So how do you intend to balance 
the efficiency issues that you are trying to get in the food program mm -hmm. without adding to the costs of defense to make sure that we have adequate CLEF capacity. Um, Did I stump you? Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Could you, you repeat you, you, the question, please? Yes. <laughs> The, the way, using U.S. flagged vessels not only helps U.S. industry, but also helps the Department of Defense to have sea lift capacity in the case of national needs. If you reduce the amount of food being shipped by U.S. flagged vessels, mm -hmm. it requires additional commitments by the Department of Defense to make sure that we have sea lift capacity available in the case of emergency. So how do you balance to make sure that the U.S. food program is contributing to our ability to be readied in the event of need by our merchant marines. Thank you, Senator, for clarifying the question. Uh, the Department of Defense has released a statement supporting the President's fiscal year food aid reform proposal and its ability to improve our humanitarian responses. The Department of Defense stated that the proposal will actually not impact U.S. maritime readiness or its ability to crew surge fleet. That's not consistent with the information I've received. So I would appreciate if you could clarify that in specifics. I'd be very interested to get a commitment from the Department of Defense that they would not be seeking additional resources uh, to meet those needs. And if that's the case, I think we should have that on the record, that, that they can maintain their sea lift capacity uh, without uh, this issue. Because that's not Thank consistent you. with the other information we received. Thank you, Senator. We, we can share the statement from the Department of Defense, but I certainly cannot speak on behalf of the Department of Defense. Uh, let me go to my second point, and that is our part, U.S. works internationally. That's critically important that we're working with the international community. We can't do this alone. But the United States government can't do it with our NGO, without our NGO partners. Mm -hmm. They provide a great deal of the help here. And yet our NGO partners have concern about the legislation that is pending. Mm -hmm. uh, if we, on one hand, increase the government efficiencies but lose our private partners, the end result is less availability of food aid globally through the U.S. players. So again, uh, we still have concerns from the NGO community. How do you intend to resolve those issues? Senator, we're open to dialogue with all of our partners, be it the uh, Maritime, PVOs, our uh, partners, to find the best way forward so that we can find common ground and have a sustainable platform for this program moving forward. Um, with regard to flexibility, my perception is that there's actually great opportunity and has been, have been new opportunities for our PVO partners with the flexibility that we're garnering. Um, we see an expansion of PBO uh, responses in emergencies. They normally don't like to handle large commodity-based programs, but they have a lot of agility when it comes to these new types of approaches, local and regional procurement, electronic transfers. So uh, in Syria, for example, more than $100 million of our emergency monies are going to PBOs to uh, help with that response. In Haiti, last year, we had both drought and hurricane, and the entire emergency response was mounted on a PBO platform. Um, with regard to development, the flexibility we've garnered so far has eliminated, eliminated the practice of monetization, which is this practice of buying food in the United States, shipping it overseas, and selling it. 
this has uh, actually, I've heard just unanimous uh, appreciation from that, from and our There's partners. no question there's, there's yeah. reform here that they support, but bottom line, there's still opposition because they believe it takes away their ability to fund their programs that they need, the flexibility they need. I think we have to work with the NGO community to resolve those issues. Uh, I want to get to one other question, which is pretty fundamental. When I first came to the United States Congress in 1987, we couldn't pass a foreign aid bill. There are many reasons we couldn't do it, but uh, there was a lack of support among the American people in understanding the role that we play in international development assistance as part of our national security budget. That was part of it. But we didn't advertise well that the fact that most of foreign aid is American-produced products. And when that got better understood, we got more support. And we have strong support for this program because U.S. agriculture says, look, we are selling our products. We're, we're selling them to the government. The government then is using it for international development assistance, and it's a win-win situation. And it acts in many respects as a counter-circular problem for American farmers. Now we're saying we're going to cut that back. How do you intend to be able to maintain the strong support that we have in this country from the agricultural community when it's going to be less of American farm products that are going to be used for development assistance? Senator, thank you for that question. I think, uh, as we all know, the agricultural uh, products in the United States have been the backbone of this aid program for 60 years. We expect that they will continue to be key partners for uh, in future operations. I mentioned the South Sudan program, and there are many others uh, where we will continue to require American in-kind food aid. Uh, but I would point out that because of rising food and fuel prices and the cost of doing business, uh, there has actually already been a very significant decline in the amount of food that is used uh, in, the, in the relief programs. So today we actually represent less than 1% of the total food uh, that's shipped overseas. And there is such a strong commercial demand right now. And we actually compete with those commercial demands when we buy our food. So for example, we heard even just uh, last week that we're not going to be able to buy sorghum or we should not expect to be able to buy sorghum in the United States over the next four months because global demand is so high that there's just a lack of availability of that. So um, on the one hand, I, I, um, I would like to think that uh, U.S. farmers will see that they, continue, will, they will continue to play a vital role and that the American people will see that by doing this program more efficiently and more effectively, we continue to uh, meet our national security and humanitarian interests. Thank you. Thank you, Samara. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the director for being here this morning. I'm a little nervous. I see that Senator Coons has, has stepped out. Uh, I've been following him at every single meeting today so far, beginning at like 5.30. I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm missing, so I hope, uh, I hope he'll let me know if his staff is here, if there's something I should be at. But uh, I, I do want to thank the director for the opportunity to be here, and a, a couple of questions for you. And uh, I, I came in uh, halfway through your, your, your testimony, so I wanted to maybe to ask some things that you covered in that. Um, in your testimony, you state that while we are getting less for a dollar with the United States in-kind food assistance and the need for food assistance, it talks about we are getting less for our dollar with U.S. in-kind food assistance. What do you mean by that statement? Just, are you talking about price? You're talking about commodity prices? Right. 
And so, thank you, Senator, for the question. Yeah. Um, so, in just as an example, in the early 2000s, it used to cost us $400 a ton to buy, ship, and program a ton of food overseas. Today, it's more than $1,200. And so, say that again. So, the first number was. 400. 400, now it's 1,200? Correct. And, and what is that, what is a ton of food? Uh, when you're, are you, you're not just referring to peas, lentils, beans. What are you referring to when you say a ton of food? So it's an average cost, but it does include grains, peas, as you've said, uh, uh, lentils, and vegetable oil are, are the primary basket that we ship. But usually no produce kind of things. Uh, correct. Apples, I mean, that's correct. Because, no. because of the shipping and the long shipping that, times that would correct, take place. That's correct, Senator. Uh, now, will that change a little bit? I mean, because you've got you've got some prices down. I think uh, uh, winter wheat's four dollars ninety seven cents a bushel in Byers, Colorado today. Uh, corn's down to its probably mm -hmm. pre two thousand seven levels in, in some places. That changes up and down, ebbs and flows. Um, the the study that you cite in the article in your testimony by Dr. Barrett at Cornell uh, talks about uh, buying food in Africa and Asia was 34% 20% less expensive respectively. Did, respectively. did, did that uh, study take into account perhaps farm programs within those countries that may or may not provide certain subsidies to their farmers mm -hmm. and that they do not hear, mm -hmm. just out of curiosity? Uh, I, th I don't have the specific country, Senator. I, I do know that they are extremely poor uh, countries in Africa, and to my knowledge, there aren't uh, farm subsidy programs in those. In okay, those so countries. this is not, you're not talking about buying it for us to use there. We're talking about helping them build a sustainable base of agriculture. That's what you're talking that's about. Correct. That's correct. Okay, wanted to make sure that that's what it's talking about and not simply saying that we're buying it to, to substitute. What percentage of, of U.S. production does, uh, uh, let's say, say lentils, uh, what, what percentage of, of, of U.S. production does U.S. food aid represent for the in-kind uh, side of the, of the food for peace? Senator, thank you for the question. I, I'm not sure about lentils per se, but, but I know not that altogether it's, it's less than 1%. Right, so we're talking our, about a, a yes. very small fraction of U.S. production that's going to, and, and, and I, 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 w I would think that an economist would not argue that you're driving and setting the market price. I wouldn't think that that's the case. That's uh, and so, so giving you the flexibility that you need to provide uh, more accurate, more specific, or a better form of aid uh, if that means displacing some kind of in-kind production would be better for you and better for our partners, correct? Yes, Senator. Uh, thank you. And then, um, the, the, and I may have missed this in your testimony, what, is there a balance and does it change year by year between in-kind contributions of U.S. aid and cash assistance? How do you prepare for that? I mean, is it just, does it depend country by country, situation by situation? Senator, it is, it is very context specific. So we discussed the Syria example where it would not be appropriate to use the, the in-kind food. On the other hand, in South Sudan uh, and in the Sahelian countries during drought, we use substantial sums of, of, of uh, food. So uh, food aid reform does not mean uh, necessarily it's always going to be exactly the, the same amount every year, the balance. Uh, but it, we do think it's going to give us the flexibility to get the right tool at the right, right. time. Yeah, That's very right. good. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Well, I, I know uh, you weren't feeling particularly well when you came in. I hope the response you've gotten today from us makes you feel a little bit better. And, and uh, we certainly thank you for being here. I, I, I do want to make a comment which may generate the need for a response from others. Um, but uh, 
It is not uh, USAID's job to ensure that our military policy uh, and sealift capacity is, is met, is it? No, sir. That's sort of a DOD problem, isn't it? Yes, yes, Senator. And I would just say, look, uh, I realize we have some sensibilities that will have to be uh, dealt with. Um, I would hope that the reason Americans, whether they're in the agriculture business or the maritime business or whatever, or the NGO business, especially the NGO business, would support us making changes because other people will not starve. I would hope that people would support this because it's an important American value. And uh, I hope that as we move through this, in spite of the fact that you know, let's face it, people make a living off U.S. programs. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, to the adversity of people who are starving, um, I would hope we would figure out a way to first prioritize uh, the great work that you are doing and this American value that uh, uh, exists with this program. So thank you, and there may be, I, I think there may be a response. Yeah, well, well thank you, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> You got my attention. You did. Um, I strongly support our food program and our development assistance programs. I always have. And uh, I would like to see a larger share of the budget and have said that publicly and would continue to support that. I also want to make sure that every dollar we spend is used in the most efficient way. So I agree with the chairman on that point. We cannot justify uh, inefficiencies on any of our programs. So I agree with you. But I regret that many Americans don't share our view of the importance of development assistance and look at saying we have not taken care of the problems of America at home. We've got to do that first. Now, we do both, and we could do a better job at both. But it depends upon our success in these programs depend upon broad support. And the issues that are being raised with the uh, U.S. flag vessels, with the NGO committees, uh, communities partnerships uh, and uh, dealing with uh, the uh, agricultural community are sensitive issues that I know the chairman understands and ones I think we need to uh, uh, be sensitive to as we try to pass a reform bill. And that was my only reason for raising it, yeah. but I want to have more efficiencies in the programs. We have broad support for the reforms that are in your proposal by all sectors of the uh, of the uh, of the stakeholders, and what I said originally, I think this is an area we should be able to try to get together on. And as you mentioned, uh, coming in, I'm sure that based on what's happened over the last week, um, we certainly should be able to deal with this. I, I would say that the, one of the things that would hit a chord, I think, with every American is using even the same dollars that we're spending the same dollars that we're spending to reach millions more to make sure that they're not starving. And with the passage of this legislation, uh, we certainly can make that happen. So, yes. yeah. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think it goes back to some of the questions that I was asking, too. In, in the House of Representatives, I represented a district that was the 11th most agricultural district out of 435 districts. Uh, Colorado uh, has some of the highest uh, wheat corn-producing counties in the nation. 
and uh, growing up in an implement dealership, none of them, I never remember farmers coming in saying, well, you know, USAID is uh, doing this or that to the program, therefore I think market price is going to be dropping today or we're really going to do well because of it. Uh, yeah. The talk was what we can do to continue to help our partners. And so I think flexibility is key, knowing that it's not about what, what price is, it's not about what uh, the effective market is going to do that day because of a program because you're talking about 1% or less of a commodity and maybe more in some cases, but you're not talking about a market-setting kind of rate. So that, that shouldn't be a part of the conversation. What ought to be a part of the conversation is giving the tools, the flexibility, and the resources we need to best provide uh, our, our neighbors around the world with the aid they need so that they can grow up with more opportunity instead of less. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> Okay, we'll now turn to our witnesses from the second panel. Uh, our first witness is Mr. David Ray, Vice President for Policy and Advocacy at CARE USA. Mr. Ray has over 20 years experience working at CARE USA, founded in 1945 as one of the largest and oldest humanitarian aid organizations focused on fighting global poverty. CARE USA is an important implementing partner for, of the Food for Peace program and was an early adopter of some of the food aid programs we are discussing today. Um, I thank you for allowing my daughter uh, to intern with you in Tanzania years ago. It had a huge impact on her life. I thank you. Our second witness is Dr. Vincent Smith, professor of economics at the Montana State University and visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, Dr. Smith. Dr. Smith's research includes an examination of agricultural science policy, domestic and world commodity markets, risk management, and agricultural trade policy. He has authored nine books and monographs and published over 100 articles on agriculture and other policy and economic issues. Our third witness is Dr. Stephanie Mercier, a senior policy advisor at the Farm Journal Foundation. Prior to that, Dr. Mercier, am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeah. Uh, was the chief economist at the Senate Agriculture Committee from 1997 to 2011. Thank you for your service here. And was involved in several of the reform efforts made for, to the Food for Peace program. And with that, uh, we'll recognize uh, Dr. Ray. Thank you all for being here. We look forward to your testimony and your assistance um, in helping us navigate uh, these issues. Thank you. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, thank you for the invitation to testify here today. I am David Ray, Vice President of CARE, a global humanitarian organization. As you mentioned, Senator CARE was founded in 1945 when 22 American organizations sent what became known as CARE packages to the starving survivors of World War II. CARE's work now stretches across 90 countries, reaching more than 72 million people in 2014. CARE has been a partner of the Food for Peace program for the past 60 years, and while we're proud to be part of this great effort, even good programs can be made better. CARE has been a longtime champion of reforming Title II funding to make it more flexible, effective, and efficient. In fact, we believe in food aid reform so strongly that we put it over our own pocketbook. In 2006, CARE voluntarily ended our participation in open market monetization. The practice of purchasing of commodities here, shipping of them to developing countries, and then selling them, often at a loss, in order to generate funds for development programs. This decision has cost CARE more than $45 million annually in federal funding since that time. 
While the proceeds of monetization can be put to good use, a GAO report estimated that monetization results in an average loss of less than 30, of more than 30 cents on the dollar. Research has shown that open market monetization also risks destabilizing local markets by flooding them with low-priced U.S. commodities. In fact, it was this potential to undermine the very small-scale farmers and communities we serve that prompted CARE to transition away from open market monetization. Since that time, CARE has called for an end to the legal requirement to monetize, and we continue to push to make U.S. food aid programs more flexible, efficient, and effective. Experience has shown us that while sending U.S. food is sometimes the appropriate thing to do, there are often more effective responses to crises. The cost of buying U.S. commodities and shipping them on U.S. flagged vessels has proven to be as much as 30 to 50 percent higher than purchasing food locally or regionally, and it can take as much as three times longer to get food to the people who need it most. Our point is this. Regulations governing the food aid program, with few exceptions, tie organizations like CARE to using one tool, U.S. commodities. It's like telling a carpenter, here's your toolbox, but you can only use your screwdriver. Practitioners need flexible funding to use the right tools for the right jobs, whether it's cash transfers, vouchers, local or regional purchase, and or efficiently transported U.S. commodities. For example, CARE is working in Haiti to establish a country-led food voucher program targeting the poorest 10% of the population. CARE's program called Corey La Vie which translates to support life, provides eligible participants with vouchers to buy locally produced staple and fresh foods. It also distributes fortified U.S. commodities to supplement the diets of pregnant and lactating women and children under the age of two who are in the critical thousand days window. The program does four main things. First, it allows the most vulnerable to access locally produced fresh and staple foods and badly needed nutritional support and to do so with dignity. Second, it allows participants to save their scarce resources, $500,000 so far, with the top two savings expenditures being school and medical fees. Third, it builds up the overall economy by creating demand for far local farmers' products. Fourth, it reinforces the Haitian financial system as vendors receive payments through their formal banking accounts or through partner microfinance institutions. Accountability is ensured by providing participants with hologram imprinted identification cards, complete with their thumbprint, picture, and a unique ID number. There's oversight on what foods are sold, and there are in-person reporting stations for participants to report concerns or complaints. Finally, because Cori Lavie was designed and is implemented in partnership with the Haitian government, the program is setting the ground for a sustainable assistance program that can be country-led and country-run in the future. While Corey Lavie uses a mix of vouchers and in-kind commodities, there are times when only vouchers or commodities are needed. But U.S. commodities are just one tool in our toolbox, a tool that is not always appropriate and should not continue to be the required method of response for Title II emergency and non-emergency programs. In conclusion, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, CARE recommends that Congress increase the amount of flexible funding provided within Title II to improve the cost-effectiveness of programs, enabling them to reach more people 
save more lives, all at no additional cost to the taxpayer. I thank the committee for its time, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank, thank you. you very much. Dr. Smith. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardenden, members of the committee, thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you today on this important issue. From their inception, U.S. emergency and other food aid programs have accomplished a great deal in alleviating hunger, malnutrition, morbidity, and mortality among the world's most desperately poor people. However, they simply have not been nearly as efficient and effective as they can be and should have been in providing the aid that mitigates the adverse effects of hunger and malnutrition among millions of children and adults. A wide range of academic analyses that have already been cited and government reports are remarkably consistent in drawing the following conclusions about the current U.S. food aid program. First, the current practice of using monetization to fund NGU programs is highly wasteful and inefficient, yielding less than 70 cents of usable funds for every tax dollar expended. Many NGOs deserve to have their food and food security related programs funded, but the programs should be funded directly and efficiently with appropriate oversight about how the funds are used to ensure they are effective and efficient programs. Second, agricultural cargo preference is an exceptionally financially costly way of shipping food from the United States to the ports of entry in the regions where the aid is needed. A conservative estimate is that it increases the cost of shipping food on average under food aid programs by 46%. About $150 million a year in 2006 dollars, never mind current dollars. As a result, of the, the US government spends more on shipping food than on purchasing the food delivered, according to GAO. And in comparison, Canada in 2012, for example, uh, used 70% of its food aid funds for food and only 30% for administration and transportation. If Canada uses local sourcing, for example, and does not, involve does not to my knowledge, involve monetization. Um, further, in combination with the current requirement, the food aid be mainly sourced from the US, the cargo preference requirement significantly contributes to otherwise unnecessary delays uh, of up to two months, as, as, as the chairman has noted, in delivering emergency food aid. The impacts of these delays themselves have severe adverse effects, particularly on the mor morbidity status of children and their long-run ability to be productive citizens. Agriculture cargo preference has been justified by private maritime interests as providing essential support and maintenance for a U.S. maritime fleet that can provide military-prepared support uh, vessels in time of war. The overwhelming weight of the empirical evidence, uh, not just from DOD but from other studies, is that cargo preferences applied to food aid makes very little effective contribution to maintaining the military preparedness of the U.S. maritime fleet through providing additional mercantile fleet capacity that can be used by the Department of Defense. Current estimates indicate that fewer than 11 relatively small ships and less than 500 sailors are affected by the foreign aid program. Uh, those numbers are estimates and they're subject to question by everybody, but they're ballpark probably pretty accurate. Maritime interests have also made a related claim that food aid related cargo preference creates many thousands of high paying jobs and has large effects on the US economy, both by expanding the US merchant marine service and increasing port service activities. Adding 500 jobs is not having a big effect on the economy, with apologies to everybody. And parenthetically, uh, the funds being used for those jobs are being diverted from other activities that would generate economic activity too. The net effect of these programs on the economy is close to zero. Uh, I'd be tempted to say negative, but then I would be a bigoted economist, and I can't say that. Um, 
a recent US, uh, um, a related important humanitarian concern is that the food carried mainly under cargo preference is mainly carried by old and slow ships. And that is partly contributing to the delay in delivery of, of food from the US. The clear primary beneficiaries of cargo preference are the private maritime interests that largely support that program, uh, particularly the companies that own the vessels. Many of these vessels would have been decommissioned as non-competitive both in intercoastal transportation and international transportation were it not for the food aid program. At least that's the evidence that appears to come from the George Mason study that was referred to earlier and, and by the work by uh, Bajan Barrett and Lentz. Um, finally, I'd like briefly to discuss the issues associated with local and regional sourcing of food aid. Uh, permitting complete flexibility or as much flexibility as possible for USAID and other government food programs uh, to locally and regionally source emergency aid and other forms of food aid is clearly a much more cost-effective way and faster method of delivering the needed aid than requiring sourcing from the United States. That's not to say that no food would be sourced from the United States. Processed food is clearly optimally sourced right now from the United States in many contexts, particularly, for example, in relation to peanut butter and products like that. Um, the humanitarian impacts of allowing substantial flexibility in sourcing food, as has already been discussed in this session, are very substantial. Uh, a minimum estimate is 2 to 4 million people, and a maximum estimate 8 to 10 million people would benefit by reallocating the funds to more flexible sourcing. At the same time, permitting local sourcing will have no measurable economic impacts on the income of U.S. farmers or the overall performance of the agricultural sector. In fact, if anything, having more money to buy food, uh, food aid food in the form of wheat and corn, which is, uh, and wheat and corn is a global market, actually would enhance global demand for those foods. And that would actually be of more benefit, although minuscule benefit, it must be said, to the corn growers of Iowa and the, and the wheat growers of Colorado and Montana. Um, in summary, ending these practices would generate tremendous benefits in terms of improving humanitarian aid, and they would benefit the U.S. in many domains, economically, politically, and in terms of the goodwill that we accumulate around the world that's so important to all of our efforts to sustain a democratic and productive society. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Doctor. Dr. Mercier. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, thank you for holding this hearing today on the critical topic of U.S. international food aid. I appreciate the opportunity to pr provide testimony on this matter. I am Stephanie Mercier, and I serve as the Senior Policy and Advocacy Advisor for the Farm Journal Foundation. The Foundation has not taken a formal position on this issue, so this testimony reflects my views alone. I also would like to note that I have worked as a consultant for a number of, of humanitarian NGOs over the last few years as well. I worked on food aid policy issues for about the last 18 years, primarily as part of my portfolio on the Democratic staff of the Senate Ag Committee between 1997 and 2011. In that role, I helped to lead the committee's uh, work on the trade title in those farm bills, and we were able to make modest reforms in the direction of improved efficiency and flexibility for the Title II program in both bills. Uh, those modest reforms were continued and the 2014 Farm Bill passed in February of last year. The reforms to the Food for Peace program proposed in the bill introduced by the Chairman and Senator Coons in February would take a giant stride further down that path. In the 2002 Farm Bill, Congress first began to recognize that the traditional mode of U.S. assistance did not always offer the optimal response. This approach consists of purchasing and shipping U.S. source commodities 
after a natural disaster or conflict had already occurred and people were already going hungry. In that bill, Congress authorized USAID to set up pre-positioning warehouses that allowed them to hold commodities that could be quickly dispatched when emergencies arose. Congress expanded the authority for pre-positioning in the 08 Farm Bill, allowing USAID to establish additional sites. The bill also increased the share of Title II funding that can be used to cover certain types of non-food expenses uh, from around 5% previously to a maximum of 13%. The other major milestone in the 08 Farm Bill was the establishment of a pilot program to test whether or not the gains of efficiency that might be available from allowing U.S. resources to be used to purchase food locally or regionally rather than insist on always being U.S. source commodities. Independent studies of that LRP pilot found that buying locally was less expensive for most commodities and that the food on average delivered in about half the time as it took for uh, food that was sourced and shipped for the United States. The 2014 Farm Bill moved that dial on reform further. It raised the share of Title II funds that can be used to cover non-food expenses from 13 to 20 percent and expanded the category of eligible expenses. That legislation also authorized a standing LRP program uh, for up to $80 million annually to be run by USDA as part of, in part as a complement to the school feeding program that they operate. To augment the limited flexibility available under current Food for Peace rules, USAID established the Emergency Food Security Program, or EFSP, in 2010. It was designed to utilize LRP and other cash-based mechanisms under the broad authority of the Foreign Assistance Act, giving them some ability to tailor the U.S. response to the variety of circumstances under which international food assistance is needed. And there's been a lot of reference to Syria already in this hearing, and I think that's a perfect example of how the flexibility can be used to, to great advantage. I would like to point out, however, that there is no need to assume that, that the legislation that the Senators Corker and Coons introduced would necessarily turn Title II into an entirely cash-based program. We know from the results of the pilot program that there are some commodities, uh, vegetable oil in particular, that are actually cheaper to produce and ship from the United States than they are to buy locally in recipient countries. We also know that there will always be some situations where the problem is simply there is not enough food in the local area. And for those beneficiaries, sourcing U.S. food and shipping it is still going to be the, the best solution. In its early years, the Food for Peace program was an important component of U.S. agricultural policy. In 1957, in fact, it was estimated that U.S. food had accounted for about 30 percent of all U.S. ag exports. Today, however, food aid shipments account for less than 1 percent of total ag exports. While U.S. farmers continue to take justifiable pride in providing food for hungry people, this program is no longer really viewed by most in agriculture as a key engine of economic growth for their, for their industry. For the last several decades, the United States has been the leading provider of humanitarian food assistance around the world, and that's a status we must maintain. However, that assistance is still delivered primarily by a mechanism that was appropriate for the market environment of the 1950s, but no longer adequately meets the needs of the people the program is intended to serve. It is past time for U.S. food aid to enter the 21st century. Congress should allow USAID to provide the type of assistance that can be tailored to the complex environment where hungry people around the world are often found. Thank you for the opportunity to testify, and I'm ready to answer any questions you might have. Well, thank you all for your testimony. I, I think you all have been most helpful, and I, most Americans who, uh, there are not many Americans, I realize, who watch these kinds of uh, panels, um, but uh, this, these, this panel is selected jointly by Republicans and Democrats, and it's amazing to me that the uh, 
the message is exactly the same uh, by the panelists. Um, I want to ask a few questions and then make a statement and turn to a ranking member. Uh, but Dr. Smith, uh, it's my understanding, if I heard you correct, that 70 to 75 percent of the ships moving food aid are not militarily useful. Is that correct? The evidence uh, in a study by Bajant, um, Barrett, and Lentz shows that approximately 70% of the vessels who move food aid are too old or, and, and, or uh, of a not particularly useful type for the Department of Defense to use in, in sea lift capacity. Bulk carriers, for example, and tankers are not the ideal vessels. Many of the vessels used in food aid are over the age that the Department of Defense identifies as being a reasonable age for shipping, and they tend to be the oldest slow vessels. There really is an argument, uh, and there is some, uh, certainly lots of anecdotal evidence, that these ships are actually bought in to the marine fleet services of the companies that use them, uh, the, these 70% that are not eligible, in order to take advantage of the food aid program reimbursements, which tend to be relatively large, and these are not vessels, many of them, that would be competitive in any other way. So effectively, this becomes a corporate, corporate welfare program uh, for a limited number of companies, some of whom are primarily foreign-owned through holding companies. It's my understanding that that number uh, actually could be as much as 40% foreign-owned. Is that correct? That, that's the estimate in the literature, yes. Yeah. So uh, to go down the same path we did with our former witness, uh, the issue that this is... First of all, food aid certainly isn't designed for our national security, uh, but the fact that this actually has significant effect on our national security, again, is a total hoax. Is that correct? Um, <laughs> this is where but I want let to Let me say mostly a hoax, well, <laughs> okay? okay. Uh, distinguished Chairman, I, I want to respond in a British House of Cards way. You might say that, Perhaps I couldn't, but, but the, the, there is... I've never is seen House of Cards, but I understand they say those kind of things. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, the, the, um, if, I, if I may, there is a related issue. The related issue is that there is a fairly rapid growth in the intercoastal shipping um, uh, that requires cargo preference for U.S. boats. That, there is growth there. The recent George Mason study uh, shows that. That growth far exceeds... Uh, on an annual basis, any loss of capacity that might be associated with moving cargo preference away from food aid cargoes. Uh, so if you think about it this way, there are events occurring within that sector that have offsetting effects um, that, are, that are not related to food aid, that are related to the cargo preference requirements for shipping from one U.S. port to another. And that's an important point. Uh, the 450 sailors I mentioned in, in my testimony, those are real people. And a, a legitimate question for the committee would be, would those people lose their jobs? The answer is there is growth in shipping um, in terms of amount of product being carried. And so it seems very unlikely that a change in the way in which food aid has to be shipped would cause sailors in, en masse, those 450 sailors, to all lose their jobs, or perhaps any of them to lose their jobs. And that matters because these are real people. Well, based on the amount of money we're blowing, I think you said we were spending more on shipping than on food. Well, that's the GAO report's evidence, okay. yes. Uh, 
these 450 folks could be sent to Tahiti and, uh, <laughs> you know, supported for their life better than any of us, and we'd still be saving huge amounts of money. So uh, I think we can figure out a way to deal with that. Well, if you'd send them yeah. to Montana, then uh, that would help Montana, our population. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, very good. So uh, in recent years, this is for everybody, in recent years, some countries in Africa have received U.S. food aid in the form of U.S. commodities for several years in a row. Uh, do you think this has hampered some recipients' ability to recover from the shock of the initial disaster that they face? This is for all of you, briefly. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the question. I, I, I think that probably there are a number of reasons why some of these countries may be facing multiple years of need for assistance. Sometimes it's continuing civil conflict. Sometimes it's continued bad weather. But I think the fact that they're they're maybe even be becoming dependent on U.S. food may be hampering their ability to take steps in their own lives that would help them adjust to those to those changes. And so I suspect that that the presence of that food every year is also hampering the ability of local markets to adjust and and recover from from the disaster. So in some ways, I think it does contribute. Yeah. You have to weigh the benefits and the costs. For an economist to say that is an inevitable thing, I know. But the benefits are that you keep people going, and there are adjustment processes that have to take place. The evidence on the impact, the, the econometric, the statistical evidence on the impact of food aid supplies on local prices is that those effects are, if they're very small uh, for, uh, in most cases, and, and that, that's what the data say. That's the data-driven evidence. Um, so that would be my comment in this context. And, and in, in, so that speaks to the likelihood of adversely affecting the development uh, the, and production of food by smallholder farmers around the world. As the only non-economist on the panel, I'll just, say, just speak from the point of view of uh, an operational NGO. Our experience certainly suggests that if we had more flexibility, that that kind of support can be provided in ways that actually helps to rebuild economies, that helps to, to build uh, self-sustaining uh, market systems in ways that helps people recover more quickly and, and more uh, thoroughly. Well, listen, uh, again, I want to thank Senator Cardin, Senator Kuhn, Senator Kane, uh, Senator Gardner, who was here earlier. I, I think that we have an opportunity here to work together to solve this problem. I, I will say that uh, I wish every American um, could have seen this testimony today, that what's happening in food aid in our nation for a few special interests that benefit only marginally is a national disgrace, a national disgrace and I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that every American I come in contact with is aware that a few special interests that have ne has negligible, Im negligible impact uh, really on them, but they have this nation in their grip. People are dying and starving, dying and starving because of this national disgrace of corporate welfare that is totally unnecessary, totally unnecessary to the beneficiaries. So I thank you for being here. 
and I look forward to working constructively uh, with people on this committee as we have so much recently uh, to ensure that our focus here is on making sure that people who are hungry uh, have the basic food elements that they need to survive. Thank you very much uh, to Ranking Member Cardin. Evidently, your comments brought in reinforcements. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me, um, as I said earlier, I strongly support a more robust federal budget for development assistance, including food aid. And I'm very disappointed that we've not only not had an increase, we've had a decrease. We should be increasing the size of the pie going to these national security issues and furthering the policies of America. And I want to make sure every dollar we spent is spent in the most cost-effective, efficient way. So I joined the chairman, Senator Coons, and others in that regard. I do feel, though, obligated to respond on the um, U.S. flagged issue. I will be the first to acknowledge that I'm not an expert on this. I don't serve on the committees that deal with, with this issue. But, but let me just quote from the person who is responsible for that, General Paul Salva, who is the current commander of the U.S. Transportation Command, who spoke directly about this issue before the Senate Committee on Armed Services on March the 19th of this year. And he was commenting about the reductions of cargo being uh, used on U.S. flag vessels and specifically referenced the reductions in food aid. And he said, I quote, with the recent vessel reductions, the Mariner base is at a point where future reductions in U.S. flag capacity puts our ability to fully activate, deploy, and sustain forces at increased risk. Now, that's the person who's responsible for our defense needs uh, as to what is happening with U.S. flag vessels. Now, let me quote from Major General Kathleen Ganey, who commenting about our merchant marines as the fourth arm of the Department of Defense, and you are critical to the nation. So this is a defense issue. I would be agree with the chairman that food aid is purpose is not national defense from the point of view of the merchant marines. I agree with you on that. But I do think we need to know the impact here it has on our U.S. readiness. The last point I would mention, quoting from the U.S. maritime industry, that the alternative here, if we don't, is to use foreign flag vessels for national defense or for DOD to build and maintain and operate the requisite vessels itself. I just think that's an issue that we have to be mindful of. Uh, I, want our, I, don't, I want to make sure our programs are efficient. It's not this committee's specific charge to deal with this issue, but I do think it's a matter that we have to be mindful of as we go through these types of issues. Let me go turn my questioning, though, to an issue that we have more harmony on. I've already mentioned that there is a concern when you reduce the amount of local produced products as far as popular support is concerned. I think that's, that's a fact. It's something we have to deal with. Uh, I do believe, though, there is tremendous benefit by local sourcing of agriculture in the host country. I think it gives us an opportunity to develop the type of economy that will be able to sustain itself and grow and provide the needs of its own people. So there's a lot of advantages to local sourcing. I also think it allows us the opportunity to deal with other goals of development assistance, and that is creating the structures within countries to make sure that they deal with 
corruption and deal with gender equity. And in agriculture, that's a very important factors. And when we local source, we have the opportunity to have more direct impact and can really make the lasting changes that can bring about stable countries that can take care of their own needs. So I think that's a real important plus for local sourcing. And I talked to former Administrator Shaw about this on several different occasions as to how we can improve local capacity and build those types of structures that will be in our long-term uh, interests. So I just would welcome the thoughts of any of the panelists as to how we could be more effective in local sourcing to develop the type of, of sustainable uh, institutions within the host countries that will give real hope for future stability in these countries and economic opportunities in these countries. If I could just refer back to the uh, Cori Lavi program that would I mentioned in my testimony in Haiti. In that particular instance, I think it's a good example of how we're working very closely with the Haitian government, both to design the program and to build their capacity to operate that program long after we and the U.S. government leave that. There are also secondary benefits in terms of, of helping to build the financial system because we're working through the formal financial system as well as building up the informal financial system through microfinance organizations. And as part of that, we're also having an effect on the agriculture industry more broadly by increasing demand for locally produced products and bringing, in this case, very purposely more women into that value chain so that they, in fact, can continue to, to improve their own lot and the lots of their family and their communities for many years to come. That's very beneficial. I mean, I, I, the gender issue is critical in these countries, and agriculture is an area where there has been huge discrimination against women. Absolutely. So it seems to me that if we leverage local sourcing, we can do that with a focus to really make a lasting change, not just feeding hungry people, but giving them a future of, of hope in a much more stable country. Senator Cardin, there's a, a, another example. Uh, World Food Program has run a program they call Purchase for Progress, or P4P, over the last several years, where they focus resources on procuring food from smallholders, from cooperatives, from, you know, not from big conglomerates or, or, or multinational firms, but from small producers. And it's been very, very, very effective. Uh, in terms of helping build capacity and building confidence among those smallholder farmers that they can deliver, they can produce a product and have a reliable market to be able to sell into. And so I think that's an example of the kind of thing you're, you're looking at is something that WFP has been working on uh, and perfecting for several years now. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I was very pleased to hear from the previous witness about steps they're taking dealing with corruption, because I am worried very much about corruption issues as a huge problem on the efficiencies of our programs. And it does seem to me that the reforms that you're working on really will give us a better opportunity to deal with these problems in country, and not just providing food, but providing a way in which they can have a sustainable future. And I, I think the way the program's being administered from the anti-corruption is a, a huge step forward in that. Thank you. And thank you so much for your input. And, uh, just the uh, tremendous successes we've had recently at uh, Senator Purdue.
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, folks, for being here this morning. Um, having lived outside the United States, I've, I've witnessed uh, the benefits of what you guys do, and I want to applaud what you do, and especially uh, the Operation CARE being based in, in Georgia. I'm very proud, uh, Mr. Ray, that you're here. Dr. Mercier, I, I have uh, just a couple of questions about, um, you know, from the business sector and the business perspective, uh, you know, your recommendations about increasing efficiency. Um, how would you see um, these reforms, or what reforms and, and, and what uh, benefits could those reforms bring to the U.S. agriculture business, and how can that help provide for the needs that we're trying to meet in the programs that you guys are representing? Uh, talk about our port systems um, and national security as well as uh, the, the shipping. As part of that, my observation is that one of the problems we have in these uh, host countries that we're, we're trying to ship to is infrastructure. Uh, our state exports a lot of poultry, and one of the problems you have, you can get it to their ports. Once it's to the port, it's very difficult to distribute within the country. So protein, fat, sugar, you know, those things are in, in high demand there. Can you just speak to some of those issues as, as we look at this? Yeah. I, I think what you're what you're getting at is goes far beyond what international food aid really provides, and that and that's a broader international ag development effort, and and I see sort of food aid as being the the starting point. You you have a, a region of a country where there's a, a drought or a civil conflict, where people just don't have enough food, and you try to figure out what is the optimal response for meeting that emergency need, but also think beyond that to some extent as to how do you help that population transition into being more sufficient, more self-sufficient, building up the infrastructure. So w one of the things that I think is an important development in recent years is the recognition that you need to try to build resiliency in those local populations. And so you need to have a combination of instruments and programs that help them do that. Part of that is, is, is making sure they have enough food when they're really hungry, and that's largely a food aid issue. But beyond that, it's 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 international development. It's helping them get seed. It's helping them build roads. Um, helping the, it, as in the case of of the the uh, poultry exports, build capacity at the ports so they can have some cold storage, so they can actually utilize U.S. or other other sources of protein. So it's it's a combination, and. There are a number of, of institutions within USAID, not just the Office of Feed for Peace, for Food for Peace, but also the Bureau of Food Security, who are focusing on making these kinds of opportunities available to these folks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Corker, uh, for uh, convening this and for leading this effort, and thank you, um, Senator Cardin, for your insights and your questions. I want to pursue three uh, lines of inquiry, if I might. Um, first, on monetization, I just, David, want to commend CARE and, and you for giving up what is tens of millions of dollars uh, of potential cash uh, for care in recognition, if I understood your testimony correctly, um, that there are harmful effects to monetization, that it's not just inefficient, it also in some instances has been documented to have a negative impact on resiliency and on the development of uh, markets in some of the countries we are most trying to help. Um, why does monetization continue as a practice? And what would be uh, the potential benefits and how might we structure a, a reduction to monetization um, and offset it with a more efficient and uh, responsible practice for supporting NGOs whose primary purpose is providing relief to those uh, who are struggling with food insecurity? Senator, thank you for your question and, and for your recognition. There are a couple of reasons that monet monetization continues 
perhaps the most concrete one is that it's required by law. Fifteen uh, percent of the of the this title. This is leading up to my question about what exactly, are the most important yes. reforms I, we I, could make by law. Right, but. right. Uh, so uh, you know, fifteen percent of Title II non-emergency funds are required to be monetized, and so they are. Uh, but the, in fact, on a practical level. Uh, there are organizations who continue to monetize because it supports very, very important ongoing development programs. If, in fact, that money was made available in, as cash, then we wouldn't have to monetize, and we could be actually getting the full value, 100% of the value of those dollars, rather than 70 cents or less on the dollar, and actually do more good. So the NGOs... Senator Coons, if I could, could I add a minute or two to your time? And for people who are just watching this, uh, ask your witness to explain how monetization sure. works. Uh, I think it'd be helpful to everyone and help build a case for what you're trying I, to do. If you would, please, because when, once you really grasp what monetization is and how it works, it's, it's hard to see it as an admirable practice. I am not meaning to impugn those NGOs who benefit from monetization. Not at all. They provide value to needed services, but the inefficiency of it really is striking. So, uh, Mr. Ray, if you well, would. Well, as I mentioned in my testimony, monetization, very simply put, is the practice of buying commodities here, shipping them to developing countries, selling them there, often at a loss, and then using those proceeds to, to fund long-term development programs. Certainly, our argument has been that would be, it would be a much more efficient and effective way to fund those programs to just supply the money rather than go through that very convoluted method and in fact losing uh, money on the whole transaction. And in the same spirit, Dr. Smith, you testified somewhat about the, the sea lift, the maritime fleet uh, that is sustained uh, through cargo preference. And uh, Senator Cardin uh, shared some important testimony in front of armed services um, that suggests that sea lift remains an important priority for our national security. Um, you testified earlier that there's a significant mismatch, that a lot of the fleet that is being used for food aid really isn't helpful or relevant for maritime military sea lift. If we were to simply more directly fund through DOD the maintenance of a DOD-appropriate sea lift capacity, what difference might there be in efficiency of outcome? I haven't run those numbers. And, and I haven't Just seen a, rough, a clear number. A but rough impression would be the, A rough impression is, let's have a program that has one goal, not be devoted to a program that has another goal. Right. Um, that is the fundamental message. Um, if DOD thought the expansion of capacity was important on a maritime basis, then DOD should be making the decisions about allocating funds there. Uh, but if I'm a general or, or an admiral or, or even a senator with, with, with issues uh, mm -hmm. associated with maritime shipping, I would really like someone else to have to pay for those costs right. rather than use my chips. And that's really what we're seeing. We're seeing, we're seeing a litany, if you like, or almost a liturgy uh, from the maritime interests that say this is a vital piece of work, uh, 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 support. If you look at the dollars, the amount of dollars that actually go to the maritime private in sector from <coughs> food aid are much smaller on a per ship basis than the $3.1 million annually that currently ships that qualify as DOD ready for shipment are currently getting. Right. Uh, there, there's a complete mismatch there. Uh, the problem, of course, is that all the funds that come out of food aid into shipping reduce the capacity of the food aid programs at current funding levels mm -hmm. to deal with genuine human tragedy. Right. 
and, and that is what is really problematic. It is not problematic that, that the Department of Defense wants to make sure they have adequate resources to protect this nation. And it's not problematic. Uh, if I owned a ship, I would want cargo preference too. I mean, I had, we understand profit incentives. Understood. Here. So that brings me to my last question, which I think is really the key question here, Dr. Mercier, and if the whole panel might address this. Um, so we are using food aid partly to provide food aid and partly to provide relief from food insecurity and partly to sustain sea lift capacity and partly to sustain the maritime labor and partly to provide monetization support for NGOs. The concern that has always been raised in these conversations is what would the impact be if we significantly streamline and modernize this program so that DOD is paying for sea lift and we're providing direct support for NGOs that are doing important development work and where it's appropriate, we're buying U.S. commodities and shipping them on Jones Act ships and delivering them with American labor and where it's not, we are doing direct, flexible, local procurement or um, direct uh, provision um, through electronic means, as you testified. How would we sustain food aid? How vital are these sectors to sustaining the allocation of food aid? When Senator Cardin raised this central point, the appropriations for food aid have gone down in recent years, and I'd love to hear from all three of you. What's your guesstimate of the impact on food aid for the long term if we were, in fact, to make it more efficient? Yeah, thank you for the, the, the question, Senator Coons. And this is an issue that it was of great concern for me when I worked on the Agriculture Committee. And, and sort of what I've worked through over the years is that you need to maintain a balance. And I think it's important to recognize, uh, just based on the LRP pilot program, that there is going to be a continuing need to purchase U.S. commodities and use in these programs. In some cases, it's going to be because it's more cost-effective, and that's largely the case with the more value-added commodities, uh, processed products, vegetable oil, that kind of thing. It's still going to be more cost-effective to buy it here and ship it overseas, and that's especially the case for nearby destinations like in Central America or, or Latin America. And then there are some places where there just simply is not enough food, and we need to, to supplement that with U.S. commodities. So this is going to continue to be a program that uses U.S. food. It just needs to be one that has other mechanisms available as well. Um, the maritime issues, I recognize that this is a legitimate national security objective is to provide assurance of having that, that sea lift capacity in, in the need of emergency. But I don't think this is a cost-effective way of doing it. As, as, as Dr. Smith mentioned, the, the data suggests that a lot of the ships carrying food aid are not suited for that reason. I'm out of time. My question isn't about cost-effectiveness. I think we have discussed yeah. Yeah. in great detail how cost-inefficient this is. My question is about whether or not the NGO community and the good intentions of the American people are enough to sustain food aid at its current levels or higher, or whether these other communities of interest have to be engaged in order to sustain food aid. Any opinions from Mr. Ray or Dr. Smith would be welcome as well. Let me speak to the agricultural sector, uh, because a lot of my work is on agriculture. Uh, there's a clear case to be made that American farmers actually will benefit by more efficient use of current dollars because it takes more food, it essentially increases global demand for these key commodities, wheat, corn, rice, and so on. Uh, there's a paradox here. The litany has always been wrong here, uh, that the notion that you have to buy American 
for American farmers to benefit is simply wrong. If we take the cruel economic view that what they care about is the price of wheat or the price of corn or the price of peanut butter, uh, what matters is how much is being taken off the global market in these globally traded commodities. As, and I think that's the case that a wide array of supporters of food aid should make. I think there are also, shooting from the hip with no expertise in this area at all, there are things that we can do to make it clear to the American farmer that their work is critical to feeding the world. For example, where possible, stamping all food, uh, food aid delivered in bulk, uh, in bulk uh, as provided with the support of the American farmer is a very nice way to go where that's politically appropriate. Things like that are important in sustaining uh, effort. It's unclear to me that the mercantile service is really an important factor in overall uh, development aid here. Uh, it's, it's unclear to me what they're doing. It seems to me, to be honest, that the, the private maritime interests are lobbying for their corporate welfare. Uh, and, and there is an issue about assuring adequate uh, capacity for the, for the marine fleet to support DOD issue, uh, efforts. Uh, the, there are other ways to go that are more efficient. And, and I'm going I'm to stop there because I'm not an expert in how politically you form those alliances that help them get more money in other directions that would be efficient, but less money than they're currently taking out from the uh, cargo preference uh, approach. Mr. Chairman, you want to let Mr. Ray answer the question? Sure. Thank you. Sure. If I may, uh, Senator, I think you bring up a really a very critical point and something that certainly has been of concern to us. The last thing we want to do is see support for these vital programs reduced. I, I will, however, say this. As an organization with a million supporters uh, around the country and 250,000 members of our citizen advocacy network in every district and state around the country, our experience has been that the most effective way to build support for foreign assistance programs and for this program in particular is for it to be as effective and efficient as possible. If we can deliver on that, we will generate public support for this program and I'm confident we can retain the level of public support that will provide political support and backing to members of Congress to continue to fund this program. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ray. Thank you to the whole panel for your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Thank Ray. you, and Senator Coons, thank you for asking the great question about what if food aid were focused on food aid. Uh, that would be a good thing. I, I doubt that, I would just say editorially, I doubt there are other aid programs that we participate in that have such a small amount of corporate welfare interest that cause us to waste as much money. I just cannot believe 450 sailors are generating the support for this aid program. Um, and I just hope that we'll figure out a way to deal appropriately with it. Uh, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to you and Senator Coons for this legislation and to all of the panelists for not only your testimony this morning, but for your great work um, in helping to provide food aid to people around the world. And, you know, I, I share the sentiments that have already been expressed that um, it's very important for us to look at the budget for food aid and try and increase that, but that we also need to be as efficient as possible and that um, there are a lot of things about the current program that don't seem to work 
um, in a way that is understandable for the American people. And I, I share your point, Mr. Ray, that I think people want what government does to be effective and efficient. And if we can make that case, it's much easier to get support for the programs that government provides. Um, I had a couple of specific questions that have come up as the result of um, Senator Cardin's question and raising the concerns about the maritime industry. Does anybody know, and maybe you know this, Senator Cardin, what percentage of cargo that's shipped by the U.S. maritime industry is actually food aid? Dr. Mercer? Yeah. Mercier? There are three kinds of cargo that are, that are affected by cargo preference rules. The, the biggest, by far, is military cargo. Right. So it's, it's tanks, it's fuel, it's, it's the kinds of things that, that we need our military overseas to have access to. That's about 86% of it. Uh, food aid is about 6 to 8%, and then the remainder is, is material that's shipped out under, under uh, transactions by U.S. Uh, import, export, bank, those kinds of things. So food aid is a very, very small share of what is covered by cargo preference right now. And is there a dollar amount that accounts for that or a percentage of the income of the U.S. maritime industry that can be attributed to food aid? Do Dr. Smith? George Mason, uh, a group at George Mason has estimated that about, that less than 1% of the total value of, of cargoes carried by the maritime fleet either commercially or under cargo preference, uh, is food aid. Uh, and and the, the follow-up is uh, you always have to remember that the majority of that, of that uh, amount that's being shipped is being shipped on, on ships that are not included in the DOD assessment of military preparedness. Senator, would you just yield for one moment so I get sure. Dr. Mercier just to comment? As we are winding down our military operations, would the percentage of government preference agriculture increase as the percentage of the, since we're now transporting less on military? Um, I suppose that's possible, but the, the tonnage that's being shipped under food aid is also declining over time. I mean, uh, as, as recently as, as five years ago, we were talking four or five million tons of food aid, and I think over the last couple of years, this has been about two million tons. So both numbers are going down, and so I'm not sure that the, the relative shares are gonna be changing that much. Uh, and just to come back to a point that was made earlier, in 2002, corn was selling at $2.20 a bushel, Today it's selling at 380, and the budget available for food aid hasn't changed measurably at all. Uh, so a ton of corn, a ton of wheat, costs more money uh, uh, for for reasons that are that probably not germane here, but uh, non-trivially relate to ethanol. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. We don't want to go into that here right now. <laughs> um, let me. I, Again, I'm, yeah, we can talk about sugar, though. I'm happy to talk about sugar. Um, sorry. Um, again, I apologize for, for missing your testimony, so some of you may have addressed this, but in 2008, the Farm Bill authorized a pilot project for local and regional procurement. Do we have um, a report or data from what that pilot progress program showed us, and can any of you comment on that? 
I think I can comment on that because I helped write the language for the, for the provision. Uh, there's actually been a, a couple of different reports that have been uh, studying the results of the pilot program. One was specifically required under the, under the statutory language, and then the separate one was done by a consortium of NGOs and Cornell University. And pretty broadly what they showed is that for most commodities, when you have the, the cost of the commodity plus the cost of shipping it from the U.S. as compared to the cost of buying it locally, um, you're saving anywhere between 30 and 50 percent by buying it locally. There are a couple exceptions, which I mentioned in my testimony, vegetable oil being one. And the other important main finding in both sets of studies is that it's much faster to do it when you procure, procure locally. I think the average was 100, 130 days to ship from the U.S. to uh, recipients and about 56 days, so less than half the time if you procure locally, for, for the emergency projects at least. Um, so who's the second um, country in terms of providing the most food aid around the world to the United States? Does anybody know? Senator, I, we can get that information to, you, to your office very quickly. A wild guess is that it's going to be a combination of, in the developed world, of Australia, Canada, and various European Union countries. That would have been my guess. And uh, uh, but China is doing a lot, and that's and why I want to say I, I'll look that up for you. Okay. <laughs> and can you also speak to how they provide food aid? Is it similar to what we do in the United States, or do they do more of the local and regional procurement? Most of the aid provided by other donor countries is cash-based. Um, Canada still does a mixture, but it's predominantly, I think, cash-based. They still do, do some Canadian source commodities, but most of the rest of the world has, has given their NGOs the, the flexibility that, that is being proposed in this legislation for U.S. And finally, Senator Coons raised this issue, but there are vested interests who benefit from the way the current system operates. So where is the most opposition coming from to changing the way the current system works? I would defer to the distinguished chair of this committee, <laughs> but a good guess is the maritime interests have been very aggressive. Certainly, we've heard from the maritime interests. Are the, there other? Uh, some NGOs are concerned about losing their ability to compete for the cash. Uh, whether that's a, any sort of a good reason for changing the system is entirely another another matter. In fact, it, it sounds to me like the worst possible reason, uh, or, or among the worst possible reasons. Uh, and several of you alluded to farmers. I haven't, I haven't heard from any farmers in New Hampshire that they're concerned about changing the way food aid works, but they're probably not benefiting a lot from um, the current program. So where are farmers on these changes? It depends on who's speaking, and, well, and, and that's critically historic. When you say that, you mean who's who's speaking for the farmers or yeah, who represents it, the farm? It farm depends industry. on which lobby you're going to listen to. Um, 
Perspectives have changed, though. In 1956, the corn growers would have been, and the wheat growers would have been, extremely supportive of food aid. They would have seen it as a major source of, yes. of, of uh, demand for, for, for their product. Today, it is a trivial proportion of the total global demand for wheat and corn, for example. And we compete in global markets, not local markets. If anything, making reforms that would take more corn, more wheat, more rice, more peanut butter off the market <laughs> would be beneficial for those, for those uh, groups. An important issue, as I alluded to earlier, is that it is true that you want the American farm community to believe that it is making a, sig making a significant mm -hmm. contribution to helping genuine problems. Most farmers, most farmers are good people. Uh, and, I, and I believe that. Well, <laughs> some maybe not, but most. No, overwhelmingly, the farmers I know are, are genuine people who, who they want to make a living, but they also recognize the importance of, of what they do globally. So it is important to communicate that American productivity at the farm level is a major contributor to our ability as a global community to feed the world and to recognize their contributions in some way. But it doesn't have to be through sourcing wheat in Ikalaka in Montana, which is the middle of nowhere, trust me, I've been there, uh, or uh, anywhere in Iowa. Mr. Chairman, can I ask the other two sure. to respond to that? Yeah. Senator Shaheen, we actually had a concrete example in 2013. After the president made his proposal, there was actually an amendment in the House to the Farm Bill that would have uh, implemented a lot of things he proposed. And there was a, a floor vote on this issue. And as I was involved with consulting with, with the NGO community at that point, we found the most effective opposition came from the maritime industry and the associated labor unions. Um, agriculture, as far as we were able to tell, did not really engage very actively for the most part. There were a few exceptions. We, we believe the rice industry uh, was involved to some extent, but most of them had much higher priorities in that farm bill as they usually do. Thank you. Mr. Ray? Yeah, I'll just say from the NGO perspective, there has been substantial support among the NGO sector for these kinds of food aid reforms. And in fact, uh, in, in lead up to this hearing, 28 NGOs signed a letter of support for the kind of food aid reform that, that Senators Corker and Coons have proposed. Uh, there are, of course, some concerns around the issue of monetization, but I think we've already spoken to that issue. Right. Thank you very much. Anybody else have any closing questions or comments? Um, I want to thank all of you for being here. I think this testimony has been outstanding, as has the hearing. My guess is, to follow up on Dr. Smith's comments, um, I, I would bet that while there are associations and entities that lobby on behalf of various uh, uh, industries, if you will, I would bet if the members themselves were aware of the negative impact this lobbying was having on people who were starving, I don't believe there'd be as much lobbying taking place. I don't think they have any idea that there are paid lobbyists up here that are causing people around the world to starve. And I just have greater faith in the American people uh, greater faith that if these groups they're representing actually, if the individuals actually knew what was happening, they would be ashamed 
and they would cause it to stop. So I thank you all for being here. Mr. Ray, thank you for the example your organization is setting. Dr. Mercier, for all your efforts uh, through the years to cause reforms to happen. The meeting uh, will be adjourned, although um, uh, questions, the record will remain open through the end of the day Friday. Thank you all for being here.